Good morning, church. Thank you for joining us. Um, I don't know how many more times we'll be worshiping together this way, but I really do appreciate your patience and your positive attitude. Um, You know, we're doing the best that we can in this, and I am grateful that you're doing that so well. So thank you for joining us this morning. We're continuing in our study of the book of Daniel. As a matter of fact, we're winding things up here. Next Sunday will be our last in the series. Uh, John Robertson will be preaching uh, next Sunday, so be sure and tune in for the last of the Daniel series. But this morning we're in chapter 5. Now imagine a conversation going something like this between two coworkers. You know, there's going to be a big layoff real soon. We're about to lose our jobs. Seriously? Eh, I don't know about that. Oh, come on, man. Read the handwriting on the wall, will you? That phrase, handwriting on the wall, is an expression of nervous anticipation. It shouts, beware. Examine the evidence. Pick up on the hints and the clues. And it's generally somewhat prophetic of doom and gloom. So how in the world did we get this old English idiom? I mean, after all, who writes on a wall but a kid with crayons at the age of two? Well, it comes to us over the last 2,500 years. And the occasion for its beginning was Belshazzar's feast and the destruction of Babylon in the fifth chapter of Daniel. Babylon's destruction and this drunken feast were predicted by both Isaiah and Jeremiah decades before it happened. Consequently, Belshazzar's feast has been a subject of real interest through the years. As a matter of fact, some famous paintings have been created to capture that image of Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall. Even Rembrandt uh, painted a beautiful picture of it. It was also the inspiration for a massive musical production composed in 1929 by William Walton. So what is this incredible story and what makes it so fascinating to all of us? Well, some 60 to 65 years passed between the episode that we explored last week when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were spared by God from their fiery furnace ordeal to what is happening in our text today. Daniel himself is about 80 years old at this time. And Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, is co-regent with his father, Nebuchadnezzar. But since Nebuchadnezzar has been gone for what is now the last 10 years in what we call Saudi Arabia today, Belshazzar has been in charge of Babylon. It's been a rocky transition during this 20 years since Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. There had been many who contended for the throne. One was assassinated by his brother. Another was killed in battle. And still another had been captured and was being held as a prisoner of war. In the text, Nebuchadnezzar is called his father. But I want you to know that neither in the Hebrew nor the Chaldean language is there a word for grandfather. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's a sad thing to me. I think it's a shame that there's no word for grandfather. So the word father was used to describe not only the relationship of a father, but a grandfather, a great-grandfather, and so on. The word could also be used to describe somebody who was a predecessor, as in a former king. Now, unfortunately, Belshazzar was a lousy heir to his grandfather's great legacy. Belshazzar was a partier, not a leader. 
And when Nebuchadnezzar died, history tells us that his enchanters, astrologers, and all the wise men, this council that Daniel was a part of, were dismissed. So this would have been Daniel's time to sort of fade away for a number of years. So we come to this party in chapter 5, and we're not told what the occasion was. It may have been a religious holiday on the Babylonian calendar. It appears that Bel, the god, uh, the idol, uh, Bel, is being worshipped or celebrated at this party. After all, Belshazzar was named after that god. By the way, he's not the only one. If you'll remember, at the very beginning of this series, when we saw Daniel being taken away from Judah as a teenager and brought as a captive into Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar changed his name from Daniel to Belteshazzar, which is also in honor of the god Bel. Well, in, a, in an unprecedented move for this time period, this becomes a drunken feast. Celebrations like this were not befitting of a king of such a significant country as Babylon. And all of the folks at the party get drunk. In another unprecedented move, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson Belshazzar invites women. Now, this was, this was unheard of. You never had parties involving the ladies of the kingdom. But Belshazzar shows no restraint. But then the drunken king did something unthinkable. He called for the sacred gold and silver vessels that had been used in worship of God at the temple in Jerusalem. Now remember, folks, remember that the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament pointed to the coming of the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus Christ. So these gold and silver vessels had been used in a prophetic way to give us an image of the coming of the Savior. When Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, he took all these gold and silver vessels, brought them, but respectfully put them into the treasury of Babylon. But in an act that must have brought the entire angelic army to the brink of battle in heaven, Belshazzar blew the dust off and swilled his strong drink from a golden vessel devoted to Almighty God. Now, now what would that have been like? Well, consider for a moment that it's communion time. Just, just think about when we're gathered here in the past, we will be again in the future, what it's like at communion time, this reverent, quiet worship and remembrance of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. So in your, in your devotion, in your quiet moments, you hear a commotion in the back of the auditorium. You turn and you notice an intoxicated stranger staggering down the middle of the aisle with a communion tray that he has wrested away from the server at the end of the pew. He reaches the front, upends the communion tray onto the floor with a hoarse laugh. Then he bends down and picks up one of the small communion cups, uses it as a shot glass for a bottle of Jack Daniels in his pocket. He lifts the cup and shouts, here's a toast to the devil himself, and then swallows it. How would you feel? What would that do to you in that moment? Well, if you could multiply that a thousand and thousands of times, then maybe we'd begin to have a glimpse into what this moment at Belshazzar's feast did to the heart of God. 
So Belshazzar raised his stolen golden chalice and toast the gods of wood, stone, and metal. And as the drops of wine trickled down his beard, he looked up and was horrified by what he saw. Chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 capture the image. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. Did you know that archaeologists have actually found the ancient banquet hall of Belshazzar's feast? It measured 60 feet wide by 172 feet long. Now, that's the same width as a football field and it's 60% the length of a football field's length. And yes, it was discovered that the walls were covered with plaster. The king called at this point in time, in his fear and trembling, for the enchanters and the diviners to come and interpret it. And once again, these guys were clueless as to what was going on. You know, these guys lived a pretty good life around the palace for never knowing diddly squat. But Daniel's word goes on to tell us what was written on the wall in Aramaic. Verse 25, this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. The king is beside himself with fear. And then at that point in time, the queen mother enters the banquet hall and reminds her son that there was a man in the kingdom that had been a great help to his grandfather, and maybe just now he will be a help to him. So Belshazzar calls for Daniel. Daniel was not a guest on the, on the list. Daniel never was a guest on the list for these kinds of occasions. If you've noticed through our study of Daniel, Daniel always abstains from the appearance of evil, always avoids those moments that would call into question his integrity or his character. So Belshazzar asks him if he can interpret what's on the wall. Once he's convinced that Daniel is the guy that can help, it proceeds. Verse 16 says, if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Can you hear the desperation in his voice? He is absolutely scared to death. He'll do anything to find out what this means. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and I'll tell him what it means. Daniel isn't doing this for some kind of a reward or advancement. Daniel knew that God's honor was at stake. So Daniel proceeds with a review of Babylonian history from God's perspective and how God worked in his grandfather's life. And then Daniel gives him this interpretation. Verse 26, this is what the words mean. Mene. God has numbered your days, numbered the days of your reign, and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed, weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, the city, which was considered impregnable, this place which had food, water, and provisional supplies to sustain the city for an entire 20 years, fell without so much as a whimper. Here's how it happened. 
Cyrus, the leader of the Medes and the Persians, had besieged the city. But he knew, and the city knew, that he couldn't outlast a siege for 20 years like the city could. So in an ingenious way, he came up with this creative plan. The Euphrates River flowed right through the middle of the great city. And so Cyrus took some of his troops and placed them where the river entered the city, placed some of his troops at where this, the river exited the city, and then he took the rest of his troops, pushed them up to the uh, farther uh, to the head of where the river was, and, and they built a sluice that diverted the Euphrates River, and when the water level fell sufficiently, the army moved in from both ends of the city and captured it in its entirety, almost without a fight. The feast became Belshazzar's funeral. Nebuchadnezzar's dream from earlier on in Daniel was coming true. The head of gold, which had been Babylon, was giving way to the chest of silver with two silver arms, the Medes and the Persians. God's word was once again proven true. Kingdoms rise and fall, leaders come and go, but God, God remains the one steadfast, immovable, infallible source of power, truth, and hope in this world. Now, I want us to take a break right here, and I want you to do something with me this morning. We're going to take uh, this see or read the handwriting on the wall and turn it into something a little bit more positive. So I want you to take your post-it note, if you, if you have some post-it notes, and if you don't, that's fine. Just grab a, uh, an index card or take a sheet of paper and tear off some uh, paper. You don't have to stick this to a wall. You can stick it to your refrigerator. You can tape it. You can use magnets. Just whatever you have available. But what I want you to do is I want you to take that post-it note, and I want you to write something on it to God. It can be a thought. It can be a prayer. It can be a word of praise or thanks. And then I want you to go and put it on your wall. Do it as a family. Do it with your kids. Uh, if, if you've got uh, grandparents there with you, do it with the grandparents. Here's a video of my kids and uh, our grandkids with uh, their handwriting on the wall project. And write as many as you want during this musical interlude or throughout the entire day. This will be your handwriting on the wall but it will be something positive, an expression of praise before God. And when you're done, later on the day, take a picture of your wall for me, will you please? And forward it to us here at church. You can send it to info at socc.org or you can tag us on Facebook, but take a moment, do your handwriting on the wall, make this something positive. So we've talked about Belshazzar's feast and all of the intrigue, but there's got to be some lessons that come out of this moment. I'm going to give you just a few. Think about these, you know, keep them in, in mind this week, will you? Here's the first one. You're never too old to make a difference for God. You're never too old to make a difference for God. Having arrived at my 65th birthday this past week, age has been on my mind for the last few days. I saw one of those lists that said, you might be old if you remember some of these things. I remembered all of them. Aluminum ice, tray, ice cube trays with, with levers. Keys used to open up a canned ham. H&S green stamps. 15-cent McDonald's hamburgers. And the Fuller Brush Man, just to name a few. 
You know you're getting older when it takes twice as long to look half as good. Or when it takes two tries to get off the couch instead of one. You know you're getting older when you sing along with elevator music. Or when the candles on your birthday cake cost more than, well, the cake itself. And you're definitely getting older when all your gatherings with friends become organ recitals. My heart, my lungs, my liver, my pancreas, my gallbladder, they're all struggling. An organ recital. You see, we too often think of aging as a setback. But here's the good news. God never does. I'm amazed at how often God used people who in the eyes of the world were way past their prime. I mean, Noah was an old man when God gave him plans for that floating zoo that we call the ark. Abraham had become a centenarian, and Sarah was 90 years old when they became parents for the first time. Moses had 80 candles on his Midian birthday cake when God sent him back to Egypt as the great deliverer. Zechariah and Elizabeth were well past the childbearing years when she gave birth to a son who would become John the Baptist. Simeon. Simeon was an old man at the temple. Anna, the prophetess, was 84 at the temple when they both spoke prophetically as they saw and held the newborn baby, Jesus Christ. Lois, Timothy's grandmother, had a huge impact on the faith of this young man who would become such a leader in the early church and a close associate of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle John, well, he was at least 80, maybe even older, when he saw God's vision and recorded the prophecy that we know as the book of Revelation. So here's Daniel about 80 years old, seemingly no longer in the picture, and then suddenly God uses him in the most powerful way. He becomes the center focus in the city at that moment. And just remember, at no age in life are you unusable to God. And here's something to keep in mind. Your role in the kingdom may be for one shining moment, and perhaps not even a moment you're aware of when it happens. Take Simeon, for example. He seems to be a non-entity until the very end of his life when he holds the baby Jesus and makes a prophecy about his life, his ministry, and his death. We don't read anything of Simeon before that. We don't read of Simeon after that. It's that one shining moment. So regardless of your age, young or old, you matter. We've seen that with Daniel. God used him as a teenager. God is using him as a senior saint in today's story. God can and will use you, even if it's for that one shining moment. Just be ready when the call comes so that you can make the difference that God planned for you to make. Here's the second one. You are never too out of it to be overlooked by God. For years, Daniel was at the top of his game in a position in the kingdom that was high enough and important enough that it kept him in the palace. But by this point, Daniel has become a kingdom has been in the eyes of the Babylonians. However, he was never overlooked in the eyes of God. Now, it couldn't have been easy for Daniel when new leadership came to the throne, leadership that didn't realize that, it was the, that Daniel is the reason the royal family's life and purpose and reign had been saved. 
I, I don't think we're much different, especially right now. Uh, you know, we, we have a hard time seeing what life is doing. Most universities are shuttered for the rest of the semester. Our local school system is out till May 1st and maybe even later, who knows? Folks have been laid off due to the coronavirus. Money is short, nerves are frazzled. No one is sure how long it's gonna last this way. I hear people say, I'm, I haven't been around people for so long, I, I think I'm forgotten. I think people have tuned me out. So are you feeling alone? Does this setting in which we find ourselves at this moment make you feel so isolated that you, you feel like nobody knows, not even God, what's going on in your life? Back in the 1980s, General Motors toyed with the idea of a single passenger transporter called the lean machine. <laughs> kind of a neat little vehicle, but they never produced it. Given the social distancing requirements of today, boy, these vehicles would be selling like hotcakes. What a neat little way to stay all by yourself. But you don't have to be in the middle of a global pandemic to understand what it means to feel like you're forgotten and alone. There are other ways. You, you can't find that one person with whom you want to spend the rest of your life. Or you're married, but you still feel forgotten and alone and overlooked. At school, you feel like an outsider. You, you, you don't feel like you fit in anywhere. Or you can't find a place to fit without compromising your faith. And you don't want to let go of your faith, and so you just feel like you're floating out there with, with no friends and no contacts. But let me remind you, no matter how you're feeling, you are never invisible to God. He never forgets who you are or where you are. You are not alone in these tough moments of life, even when you feel sheltered and quarantined at home. In these days when the store shelves are partially empty or you can't get what you need or your doctor's appointment has been canceled because your situation is classified as non-essential, just remember this promise of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry. Don't lose heart when you can't navigate your way through the fog of disappointment. God knows what's going on. God knows what you need. God knows who you are and where you are. So stay the course and trust him because I'm telling you, the Lord always keeps his promises. Here's the third thing. You are never too smart to learn from the lessons of the past. At the banquet, Daniel reviewed what God had done in the life of Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar and how Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled before God and came to realize that the God of Daniel was the true God of all. But then Daniel added, but you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Perhaps God had been patient with Nebuchadnezzar because he had never heard the truth before. But Belshazzar, 
He had the advantage of historical knowledge. He knew the stories of his grandfather. He knew how God had worked in the kingdom, and yet he showed utter disregard for the wisdom of the past and the presence of the Almighty. We all make mistakes, folks. There is not one of us who is perfect. But let us take this lesson to heart. We are never too smart to learn from the mistakes or the wisdom of the past. That's one of the reasons I love reading biographies. I learn lessons to embrace. I learn mistakes to avoid. And I'm ever so grateful that God included so many biographies in his word. And and do you realize that there are more biographies of failure than success in scripture? I know God is patient, but we have the advantage of seeing his plan unfolded through the ages. How patient will he be with us if we think we're too smart to learn from him or to learn from the past. Here's the last thing. You are never too strong to survive on your own. Like the builders of the Titanic, King Belshazzar was overconfident in himself and his unsinkable kingdom. But Babylon did fall that very night, as a matter of fact, and the royal line of Nebuchadnezzar slipped quietly beneath the waves of the annals of history. If you think I can make it on my own, I'll do it my way. I don't need any other help. I don't need God. Be ever so careful. I think it's time for you to read the handwriting on the wall. Because I want you to remember that the Bible says our days are numbered as well. And if God weighed our lives on his divine scales, what do you suppose would be the outcome? Would we be found wanting? What God has to say to us is the most important factor in our choices and our decisions. Take his message to heart, cling to his promises, follow his dictates, and we'll survive, not in our strength, but in his. 30 years ago, back in 1990, just after the Berlin Wall was torn down, Billy Graham was invited to lead a worship service at the famous Brandenburg Gate to underscore the need for spiritual development in this newfound political freedom. Afterwards, Graham told about one East German woman's response when the wall had come down and they were allowed to go into West Germany for the first time in decades. She said she expected to hear church bells ringing. She had hoped to be handed a Bible after all those years behind the Iron Curtain. Instead, she said, we were greeted with about $50 to spend in the luxury stores of the West. And then she added, what we really needed to hear was the voice of God. More than anything today, we need to know what God has to say to us. I'm I'm convinced it's the only way that we'll survive. It's time. It's time, folks, to read the handwriting on the wall, don't you think? You see, in him is our strength, our life, and our hope. Without him, the party's over. Let me pray with you. Father, we are grateful today that you have given us a hope and a promise that even in the midst of uncertainty, fear, anxiety, in the midst of an unknown future, that you are still the God who is in control. You and you alone are God. 
So Father, build our strength. Help us to trust you more. Help us to lean on you. Thank you for this wonderful picture that we have in Daniel and, uh, and this experience. Lord, help us to read the handwriting on the wall to see what you have called us to be and who you have called us to be. Give us your grace for the days ahead. Help us to be a living example of what you've written in your word so that we might be a light in the darkness. And all this we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, if you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, don't hesitate to give us a call, send us an email, text us. We're here. We want to be able to help you through this time. So don't, don't let your questions you know, fade away or, or, or be afraid to ask. Let us help you because we want to make your days in the future the best they can possibly be. And the best they can be is with Jesus Christ. Keep your chin up. Don't lose heart. Stay the course. Have a great week in Jesus Christ.